0: Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Let's begin with Lord Adair Turner. He's the former chairman of the UK's Financial Services Authority, now the chair of the Energy Transitions Commission, out with a new report uh, this morning called Better Energy, Greater Prosperity, outlining how to halve carbon emissions here uh, by the year twenty. Before we get into the to the, to the substance of the report, uh, there has been so much of a conversation coming out of Washington about whether or not the president will uphold his end of the Paris Climate Accord and, and his end of that, that bargain in particular. What power does he have? How important is it for the U.S. to sort of stay uh, with the promises it's made?
2: Well, I think it would be very unfortunate if the U.S. formally pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord. But... What is clear across the world is there is a determination from many other countries, from China, the European Union, UK, many emerging economies, that they're going to stick to the climate accord of Paris and that they're going to take action because they believe that the costs of getting to a low-carbon economy are relatively low. There are major benefits. There are huge benefits in emerging countries which have terrible local air pollution, want to move away from dirty coal towards clean forms of electrification, all of that is going to occur whether or not uh, Donald Trump you know, is going to support it. So I hope he will continue to support the Paris Climate Agreement. I think it would be seen as a major negative move across the world and, and would be a, a denial of the, the science which lies behind it. But the momentum of change, uh, I think, is is there because it's partly being technologically driven. It's being driven by these extraordinary collapsing prices that we're seeing of wind of solar of batteries which is opening up the possibility of a sort of new industrial revolution with lots of job opportunities uh, lots of economic opportunities, and, and that's there, uh, whatever the policy of one individual government.
1: What's the role of business here? If if there's going to be a diminished role by the U.S. government, by the administration at least, uh, in, in promoting climate change uh, research and
2: policies, does business inherently have to play a bigger role? Well, business has an absolutely crucial uh, leadership role. Uh, on uh, climate and on my energy transition commission we have a whole series of, of major businesses including fossil fuel companies like Shell and BHB Billiton, pure renewable energy players like Energy, major companies like Tata Steel, major uh, finance guys like BlackRock and HSBC and all of those and, in this forum and in another fora are coming together and arguing that climate change is a serious mm-hmm. issue and that they have to responsibly engage uh, in it, but there are also business opportunities for them in it. So I think business across the world is increasingly playing a leadership role. It is still important to have government policies. Let's be clear as well. Good power market design, very clear uh, structures of the way that you create auctions uh, for renewable energy, those are vitally important to drive further down the price of renewable energy.
0: Where we are in the learning curve of the vogue of five or six years ago, which, to be honest, Lord Turner, I never bought, (laughs) which is the auctioning in Europe of carbon. You mentioned the auctioning of renewable energy. I'll go with you there on it because I'm going to believe it's more countable is a statistical uh, idea. Give us an update on the failure are the auctioning of use of carbon.
2: Yeah. The UK the, the, Europe has this uh, emissions trading scheme. The idea was to scheme. limit l- limit the amount of uh, carbon that uh, could be traded could be emitted in total and you had to buy permits to be blunt the problem was that there were too many permits in the system. If you have too Agreed. many permits in, in the an too auction many system exceptions. The price the price will fall. Uh, to such a low level that it didn't make a difference. And in retrospect, that emissions trading scheme has not been the major driver of change in Europe. It's been enormous change, but it's been other policies are more effective. Now, I wouldn't exclude the possibility of good emission trading schemes in future, but they mustn't be undermined by just giving away so many permits for free. I don't
0: want to get you in trouble here with the House of Lords, but the basic idea (laughs) that that scheme that it was years ago was on the verge of Bitcoin. I I'm, know I'm, I'm making a joke. I yep. understand that. What are the institutions in place now to get us to better schemes for the public, for the government, but also for corporations as well to incentivize them to do the right thing for the public?
2: Well, one of the ways to do it is to actually set a, a carbon price. The UK now has. Uh, is now relying not on the emissions trading scheme to set a, a price for carbon but essentially on a tax and indeed there have been debates uh, even among republicans here about whether if you had a carbon tax and then use that money to cut income taxes or corporate taxes that could be you know a good development it would be Taxing something that we don't want, which is carbon emissions, and reducing taxes on things that we do want, like employment creation. So I think there's been a switch around in policy thinking that the role of carbon pricing needs to have the government okay. more directly saying we're setting the price rather than just relying on an auction mechanism
0: one of your heroes and one of my heroes is a guy named ronald Coase, a oh, boy yeah. who lived yep. to be 103 yep. years old yep. he would say within all of his writing that there's a limit to the incentives that you can give to corporations so you tell me that shell and bp are part of your energy
2: shell is and bhp so, billetons bhp yep. I'm no, so BP sorry. are also very committed okay on this but,
0: issue. BH, uh, fine, yeah. but BHP. Fine, but of Australia, and uh, this is Broken Hill Properties, for those of you of a certain age, and Shell as well, what are their limits to doing good if they're in the business of making coal and carbon and the rest of it?
2: Well, they've obviously, uh, you know, they've got their own uh, business. Uh, uh, You'd have to ask them about that particular issue about how they make the trade off. They've been members of this uh, commission. They have supported the conclusions that uh, we've got because they want to be part of a business community which is committed to uh, reducing uh, emissions overall. And that may require, over time, that they change the mix of their business um, to be focused on. First of all, those bits of fossil fuels which we really need for the future rather than those which we don't. And, for instance, with in coal, there's a big difference between metallurgical coal, which we're going to need for a long period of time to make steel, and thermal coal for producing electricity, where, bluntly, there are lots of alternatives out there and better alternatives uh, from renewable energy. So all fossil fuel companies need to think about how they migrate through these changing set of you know, mm. social needs but also economic possibilities.
1: We're talking with Lord Dear Turner. He's the, uh, the chair of the Energy Transitions Commission out with a new report uh, this morning here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Who is the audience for this uh, report? Is, is the effort here to convince uh, businessmen uh, and businesswomen that this is an important issue for them to, to take up? Who would you like to see read this Well, and, we
2: certainly yeah. want to see uh, business people read uh, this report. We also want governments to uh, read this report, and in particular actually some major emerging market mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a governments with whom we are in already uh, significant discussion. I mean, there's a very important argument uh, in this uh, report that that even if you look at a country like India... India can drive a big increase of electricity demand from 1,000 terawatt-hours, as they're called, to 3,000 terawatt-hours, three times as much electricity by 2030 while not building anything like uh, the coal-fired power stations it was previously committed to. And that's because the cost of solar energy is collapsing. There's been some amazing bids uh, in a, uh, uh, India well, recently at just three rupees per kilowatt-hour, uh, which is just five uh, US cents well, that- per kilowatt-hour. There is a a real possibility that there are major merging markets which do not have to go right. through the big coal phase, which we were previously this is worried brilliant.
0: about. brilliant. I wanted to come back and talk about Wall Street, but let's come back and do this on renewable energy because, David, I think we have stereotypes of how expensive solar panels are in your no. garage. In 1970, and as yep. we heard from Lord Turner, uh, things have changed. David, what I see here is windmills in the East River uh-huh. overlooking your view as you, as you <laughs> eat
1: your kale
0: in Brooklyn. I mean, I can see, I windmills, see yet, yeah. windmills in your backyard.
1: There are apparently turbines under the, underwater in the East River now. Uh, oh, really? Seriously? Near Roosevelt Island. I've heard. I, I haven't seen that. firsthand. Well, you can
2: do that. It's called tidal flow or river flow stuff. Uh, that's l- less developed than the above ground uh, wind turbine. Yeah. But, but the crucial thing is that over the last five years, the cost of okay. wind has well, come down by 70 percent and the cost of solar has come down by 90 okay. percent. These are dramatic cost reductions. Well, we
0: say thank you so much for being with us. I guess you've got a, a, uh, a dare Lord Turner uh, with us today and, of course, with his energy uh, consortium as well. David Ger and Tom Keane, together, together in New York. Shab, Jalanus with us now uh, with Credit Suisse. Shab, let's talk actually making money or even more, not losing money. Which is it on a foreign exchange desk now? Is the goal to make money or are you really focused on not, not losing money?
3: Well, ultimately, you have to make money to, to validate why you exist as a firm. Um, now, how you make money may have changed over the years uh, due to regulation and other factors, but it's still about making money at the end of the day. Um, and you know, we're still about
1: trying to generate ideas for how people can can do that ourselves and our investors as well. Explain the complexity there. We, we were all focused on the French election on Sunday. Going into that uh, days before, uh, this is this is a funny environment in which to trade, in which to look at, at at currency pairs when there is so much political risk. Yes, absolutely. This is a classic macro
3: environment, I, I would say. Um, the Prevalence of elections, the uncertainty around policy—you know—as as we've discussed, even with the U.S. Uh, situation now with the budget, there's a lot of different factors out there. What's interesting is that um, the markets tend to be very. Uh, hot and cold about which of these things to focus on. Um, so for example, when the French election was was the topic uh, coming into this weekend, Euro implied volatilities went very, very high and nothing else was in focus, um, including the budget situation in the US. So uh, that, Then revolves and changes quickly from one thing to another, but you don't really have, I would say, a a background environment of generalized high volatility, and I think that reflects uh, an underlying sense of
1: well-being for the global economy at this point. What did you do uh, after those those results came in on Sunday? What, What did that confirm for you? What were you able to do? How were you, how were you trading after you saw the results from the first round of the French election?
3: Well, I think the, the results actually met expectations in the sense that not only were, did it go in line with what the polls were predicting, but they also validated what the option markets were, were pricing in for the scale of a one-day move that you would expect uh, on that result. So in that framework, there wasn't much that one could do. You, you had a gap in the direction uh, that uh, it was supposed to go in, the euro's exchange rate. In about the rough magnitude that it was supposed to. So I think at that point in time, really, either you had called it correctly to start with or not, mm. but there wasn't much else you could do at that exact point. Now, from here on, of course, it's still a live game. I would say that at this point in time, um, and from a very short-term perspective, the market has come a long way in terms of pricing in a good outcome from the second round. So maybe some caution is valid at this point. Um, having said that from a medium to long-term perspective, if we do get a Macron presidency in France, coming on the back of the, the positive result from the Dutch election as well for, for let's say, more establishment uh, candidates, it will generate a lot of optimism about whether Europe can actually reform uh, and push in the right direction. So I think the euro's medium-term outlook has improved a lot since this French And you're race. still saying I'm if. Uh, well, I'm, I, I will say if because I feel that uh, there's a number of you know, ifs valid, valid yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, we don't know the second round result. But secondly, uh, it's still unclear whether the reform process in Europe can move at the pace markets want to see. Um, at the end of the day, for example, deregulating labor markets, that obviously is something that's beneficial for corporates, um, for, for business. But there's a lot of people in France who don't want to see that, those who have voted for Mélenchon, uh, those who, many of those who vote for Le Pen. Oh. So the strains and stresses will still be there, uh, and I think the uh, jury is right. still out whether we can surpass those. Mm.
0: Shab, quickly here, the strains and stresses on the U.S. dollar, which way?
3: Well, I think for now, uh, certainly against the euro, the U.S. dollar is heading south. Uh, I think uh, the, the longer we have uh, an environment in the U.S. where it appears that policy uncertainty uh, is a persistent theme. Um, yeah, plus
0: it changes every 48
3: hours. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't help either, frankly. Um, look, th- there are certain trades you can do. Uh, we discussed earlier, for example, the, uh, the dollar rising against the Canadian dollar, uh, which, interestingly, you know, one of the few areas where we are seeing progress, in inverted commerce is on a trade side, where uh, the US looks likely to impose tariffs on Canadian right. soft lumber, for example. Um, so, yeah. things are happening. They may not be the things everyone initially bought the dollar for, but in very specific pairs like the dollar against the Canadian dollar, you, you can right. buy the dollar. But when you have another, uh, si- the other side of the corner is the euro, which is experiencing its own positive political story and has a good economy story behind it for the time being, then I think the dollar is going to go lower. Okay.
0: Shahab, thank you so much. Shahab Jalanous with the Wisdom on Foreign Exchange uh, this morning. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated Member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad, or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. Uh, David, the budget, we're going to do five things here in, in, in a bit, but my head's spinning after the last 48 hours, isn't it?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, we we had to... The s-
0: wall's like off, right? The wall is, is that the latest?
1: Moved a few months ahead. We'll get the latest from Stan Collender here in just, just a moment, but it sounds like the president's willing to talk about the wall and... Uh, once we get past this government shutdown deadline, which is coming at the, at the end of the week, uh, we had the Treasury Secretary, Steve <clears throat> Mnuchin, coming out at the daily press briefing yesterday talking a bit about tax reform. <laughs> Expect to learn more about it tomorrow.
0: Let's bring him in right now. Stan Collender, of course, has given us such great assistance at Bloomberg uh, Surveillance on Fiscal Affairs, his work with the legislative body and the Joint Economic committee uh, years ago stan you're in london good morning greg valier publishes this morning on the shutdown is a phony discussion It's just a debate that you know we're gonna have it we're gonna get there do you sh- do you feel like it's a non-event or should we really give it some respect on to midnight friday into saturday
4: well it may not be this week tom that is uh, congress may give itself an extra week or two to work out uh, the kinks here um, generally speaking, it's not likely we're going to get a shutdown, but uh, given some of the uncertainties going on with the Trump administration and the irrationalities that uh, they've, they've shown us in the first 100 days, I'm not quite as uh, comfortable as Greg is in saying this is a non event. It probably won't happen, but yeah. I don't think you can, you can just dismiss it out of hand.
0: Who should we watch in Congress? Is it all about the Speaker? Do we watch this Freedom Caucus? Is it about, you know, how quaint is this? Chairman of committees?
4: Mm-hmm. Who do we watch? Well, there there are two basic things. First of all, where do Senate Democrats come out? Uh, If they go along with the bill that uh, seems to be working its way through the Senate, then that will put the House Freedom Caucus uh, in a a very difficult position since essentially you're going to be asking the Freedom Caucus to agree to legislation. That is a funding bill that doesn't have anything that they want in it. It may have too high a deficit. It uh, it 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 won't uh, repeal and replace Obamacare. Um, So those are the first two things to watch. But the big one, the absolute big one, is watch the Trump administration. Watch what what the the president says is his bottom line, his red line. I mean, we've seen something in the last couple of days that – uh, his his threats about the uh, the not funding the wall causing a uh, ca- causing a shutdown have been moderated a little bit, but let's see because you can't necessarily take this White House uh, you know for uh, what it says for granted. It, it could change tomorrow. It could change this afternoon.
1: Help me with the history here, if if you would. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm looking at a quotation here in a piece on on Bloomberg News about back and forth between the White House and Congress. Chuck Schumer, the Senate minority leader, saying things were going just fine. Negotiations were going just fine until the White House got involved. In years past, what kind of role has the White House played in these discussions?
4: Well, basically, very small because typically it's been Congress of one party and the president of another when you've gotten a shutdown. I think in '95 with Gingrich and the Republicans versus Clinton in the White House. Um, so things were going along just what just fine, uh, as, as as Chuck Schumer said, and then all of a sudden the White House started to make what what it called at the time some non-negotiable demands. Uh, that's my phrase, but basically, uh, you know, uh, saying the same thing the protesters did in the '60s. Yeah. Um, so. It, this is unusual. Uh, it's also unusual for one party to be having so much trouble coming to an agreement among itself, and with the president saying the equivalent of I'm going to put a gun to my head and shoot myself if uh, you don't give me exactly what I want. And that's what could happen if there's a shutdown no. that you blame for.
1: Stan Collinger with us from our bureau in London today, executive vice president, the MSL group at Budget Guy on Twitter. Stan, great to, to speak with you once again. Let me ask you about uh, the level of engagement here between this White House And the Congress last night, the president had dinner with Senator John McCain and Cindy McCain and uh, Senator Lindsey Graham as well. Tonight, I believe Bob Corker, Senator Bob Corker, the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, is going to be at the White House for dinner uh, as well. This is a a president who is at least trying to and and publicly declaring that he is reaching out to, to members of Congress. How's that? How's that working out?
4: Well, it's interesting you ask. As we reach the first hundred days, my my strong impression is that uh, this is the biggest failure of the first 100 days. Is that the, and the transition, the president's inability to develop a working relationship with Congress after 100 days is going to hurt the second hundred days. And remember, it's only 150 days from now that fiscal 2018 starts. And if we don't have a potential shutdown now, we're certainly going to have one then. So, um, this is the biggest drawback. Of the administration, the president, is still treating Congress mostly like they work for him. And they don't feel that way. They feel that they work for their constituents.
1: Who's leading his uh, his team of negotiators with Congress? In other words, who in the White House has the best connection to to lawmakers on Capitol Hill? Is it Ryan's Priebus? Is, uh, is it the vice
4: president? Well, it's the vice president and its OMB director, Mulvaney. Uh, he, you know, a former member of Congress, member of the Freedom Caucus. Uh, He's been at the forefront of a variety of issues in which they've had to deal with Congress, including health care, including now the tax plan that's supposedly going to be at least revealed tomorrow, uh, and a variety of other issues, of course, negotiating on the continuing resolution. So Vice President Pence seems to be working behind the scenes mostly. Mulvaney is out there, out in front, uh, is both cajoling and uh, uh, cavorting with members of Congress to try to get them to come along.
1: Help me understand the the White House's thinking here when it comes to tax reform. Why not just partner with Congressman Kevin Brady and and House Speaker Paul Ryan on a a joint plan? In other words, why, why go on this parallel track? Why introduce a separate proposal entirely?
4: Well, that's one of the things I meant by not working out a working relationship with Congress during the first 100 days. You're asking exactly the right question. But it looks to me as if the president is asking for and says that he's promised more during the campaign than uh, either the Brady or Ryan plan wants, and plus the, uh, the Ryan plan, which includes the uh, border adjustment tax, is something the president goes hot and cold on depending upon which day you talk about it. So the, all the, we don't have any details, but the bottom line seems to be the president wants a 15 percent corporate rate, uh, corporate tax rate, uh, that that's going to be difficult to do without uh, blowing up the deficit further than it already has been blown up. Um, And that's not something that Congress wants to go along with. So whether this is a negotiating strategy or this is something he really wants and is adamant about, we don't know yet. But um, this is is partly ego, partly this is what I promised during the campaign. Um, And it just hasn't worked out that relationship to say, what do you guys want? What do I want? What can we get together on?
1: Stan, we've talked a number of times here as we've faced a a new continuing resolution. It's become a very normal thing uh, in Washington. We've become inured. To it? Have the markets become inured to it as well as we, as we face another short-term spending bill? Do the markets really care whether or not we get something longer term than that?
4: No. Uh, look, and I think the average American doesn't care either. That is, as long as the government doesn't shut no. down and it, 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 as long as we're showing some ability to work together, neither markets nor the average voter is going to care whether it's a continuing resolution or an omnibus appropriation or an individual appropriation. Um, it's when – We start to get close to this point of a shutdown, and there doesn't seem to be a resolution, and it's all irrational. That's what shakes up markets the most. That's what one of the reasons I'm in London is talking to clients about exactly that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. about the craziness that could go on. So – but we've had continuing resolutions now for more or less five, six, seven years in a row, and it hasn't really destroyed the country, has it?
0: Stan, sorry I was late here. I was up in the food court having Walker's shortbreads established <laughs> <laughs> 1898. Not a chicken sandwich? No, not a chicken sandwich. Have your priorities <laughs> straight. We're, we're getting, we're getting, <laughs> <laughs> Stan, help me here with a thing nobody talks about, including the president, and that is tax revenues. I, my, my anecdotal evidence is anybody within 50 feet of me over the last two weeks is stating that they're taking more taxes than they used to take. Do we have a lot of tax revenue as compared to GDP or whatever, per person, whatever?
4: Uh, I don't know about per person. Uh, You know, usually when you hear that, it's not just the federal taxes. They're talking about the total taxes. Yes, total taxes. Um, And my understanding is that state and local governments have actually increased taxes pretty substantially over the last couple of years. So that while the federal government often gets blamed – that continuously yeah. gets blamed. It, very often the reason they're getting blamed is because of something they're not doing, and that's state and local taxes. In addition, it's not just taxes time. Um, how many times have we all been charged additional fees that we used to be able to – for services that we used to be able to get through our tax system? Um, that's becoming – it's kind of like the airlines, you know, charging for air.
1: We have Jen Epstein that uh, the Treasury Secretary wants to, to advance a plan that would enable us to do our taxes on a postcard.
4: Oh, that's uh, – uh, come on. That's <laughs> really <laughs> –
1: um, how, how do you square to, that with, with, with how long it's taken to get principles here from, from the White House? In other words, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you've got something very minimalist. On the other, very maximalist.
4: Yeah, and, and remember, to do, do your taxes on a postcard means you'd have to give up – if it's an individual tax, uh, you'd have to give up the mortgage deduction, the charitable interest deduction, and every other big deduction and credit that most people want, which are so politically popular that you're never going to give them up. So the postcard is going to have to be an oversized postcard, probably with multiple folds if you're going to do it on a postcard.
1: Uh, is there advantage here to going two ways, doing personal tax reform and corporate tax reform
4: separately? Why do both at the same yeah, time? Yeah, that's a good, good question. Well, it, chances are the, the yeah, there's big support for doing the corporate tax, but uh, corporate tax reform first, or maybe only. And and a lot of the uh, the folks who want individual tax reform are saying, I'm not going to vote for the corporate side unless you put the the individual side together, because they don't think there's going to be as much impetus to do the individual side if it waits till later. So it's purely political, logistical. Um, Yeah, they could probably do the individual, the corporate side first, but uh, it's not clear that they would actually have the votes to do that, because some members would just hold back.
1: I'm very interested in what you're telling clients in London, what they're interested in, and, and the message that you're telling, you're you're conveying to them about Washington. I imagine that they're as flummoxed as all of us about what's going on and and, and recognize that this Washington is different from a Washington of five years, 10 years, 20 years ago.
4: Tom, it looked like you were exasperated. exasperated. <laughs> no, I, I just, I, my head is spinning always, over the always, border yeah. wall.
0: I mean, I, was it, David, like literally 30 hours
1: ago? If that.
4: We're talking about the border wall? Yeah. I mean, are we going to see more of this, Stan? Oh, absolutely! Um, look, it's first bizarre. of all, you, you don't you don't seem to have a long term, meaning three day plan coming out of the administration on any particular issue, um, the, and and the border wall is exactly that. That is, um, the president oh. should have known, or his people should have known, that threatening to to veto the continuing resolution over the uh, over funding for a border wall was just a political non starter and the Democrats were never going to go along with that. So he was setting himself up for a failure. So in the meantime, two days later, 24 hours later, the administration said, well, okay. it doesn't actually have to be funding for the wall. It can just be you know, so, some sort but of additional border security.
0: Help David and me with the idea that they get a plan, they get an idea, and they go in the Oval Office and the President of the United States says, no, we're not going to do that. Is that the budget planning that we're doing right now?
4: Well, first of all, I'm not sure how much budget planning we're doing. Uh, We can talk about that at length because you know that's my specialty. But um, uh, I I don't see a whole lot of of big picture sit down, let's think about this, let's put all the pieces together and try to come up with a coherent plan. And now to get to David's question, David, that's exactly what I'm in London talking to clients about, which is the irrationality and the lack of planning. And so that don't assume just because something doesn't make any sense that it's not going to be done that way or it's not going to happen that way. Um it's, it's that level of irrationality that I've been telling clients about for a couple of years, and it's just gotten worse since the election.
1: Stan Collender joining us from London today. Stan Collender, uh, senior vice president, executive vice president with MSL Group. Can give us valuable information, valuable insight there on the budget process, yes, but also just all of the the legislative back and forth uh, in Washington, D.C., Tom.
0: David and I try to be here for every minute of surveillance across the six hours that we do Uh, every day. David's got his show, of course. When is it, David? I can't remember. One one o'clock. One one o'clock, excuse me. So, you know, we're going like the whole time. And we're, you know, I mean, John Tucker, you're a gerbil. We're not. I mean, we get that. But there's points where we just miss a few precious minutes. (laughs) And I'm sorry, David, that I miss... The few precious minutes of that beginning block was was Stan.
1: No worries. No, we, we was were getting a sandwich. It was.
0: <laughs> no, I was not getting a uh, an advanced Pierre sandwich. I, I was getting Walker's shortbreads, which oh. is
1: which I understand you can get at uh, the Vince Lombardi uh, truck stop on the New Jersey Turnpike. Yeah, one of their I think I've stopped there.
0: Advanced Pierre restaurant quality microwave convenience. <laughs> Taken up by Tyson's Foods. There's a lot all of mergers cash, going on. Seriously. Yeah. A lot of mergers going on, starting with Beckton Dickinson CR Bart on Sunday. Stay with us worldwide. This is Bloomberg. <laughs> David Harrow. Uh, joins us with uh, David, are the international stocks still outperforming as they have for the recent months? Yeah, we've had,
5: uh, especially after yesterday, which was a very large day, you saw the European markets were up over 3% in response yeah. to what happened on Sunday in the election, kind of a relief rally and yeah i'm i'm looking at our uh, various portfolios and funds we manage we're all up well into the double digits which of course you have to be a little careful about because uh, so value often uh, almost rarely changes at the same rate that price does. And now we're seeing this mm-hmm. prices is going up faster than value is yeah. being created, meaning the value gap shrinks.
0: I did this chart on Facebook live yesterday. Karen Buchanan demanded that I do this chart uh, our ace uh, head of all production and 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 David, I my story was CR bard. did you own CR bard with the Beckton Dickinson takeout? Okay. So, you know, they're done better than good. They made 14% a year for the last uh, 10 years. But even in a buy and hold strategy, on a moving average basis, there are quiet, boring periods. How does David Harrow manage when a stock goes nowhere? How do you you handle that?
5: Well, you take advantage of it, really. If price isn't reflective of the underlying buildup of intrinsic value, then that becomes a buying opportunity. And if price moves a lot more aggressively than the buildup, then underlying intrinsic value becomes a trim or a selling opportunity. And so we don't really look at price movement. We look at the buildup or the changes that occur in intrinsic value, which is essentially free cash flow per share that's what makes a company valuable is the, is the cash that the business generates. And so as long as the management team is able to drive cash flow per share uh, in a favorable fashion, then we're happy. If Mr. Market, you know, for some reason isn't focused on it. If Mr. Market is ignoring it, that's fine because eventually our view is that Mr. Market will catch up with fundamentals.
1: How does this, this environment look for, for more mergers? Uh, Tom mentioned we've seen a number of them here over these last couple of couple of days. Uh, do you expect it's going to be a, a better environment for them going forward?
5: Well, I don't know. If, I mean, it's been so strong, so I don't know how much better it can yeah. get. But I, I would anticipate that it continues to go on uh, at, at, a, at a measurable pace. Why? Because you still have reasonable interest rates. There's still opportunities. Companies are having trouble finding growth pockets, so what they're doing is trying to merge to gain synergies, as an example of the PPGXO-Nobel yep. merger. So they're using this as a way to better leverage fixed and even human assets. And maybe the asset is a distribution system, or it's it's getting better scale in manufacturing. you know the one area where I'm really surprised there hasn't been more corporate activity is in the automobile market. Mm. you know Mr. Marcioni at Fiat Chrysler wrote a paper called Confessions of a Capital Junkie," and it basically just sh- demonstrated that that industry just is, is too much capital. And there's so much leverage that could be obtained if you merged some of these companies and combined some of these brands. You saw a little bit of this after the financial crisis, but I'm really surprised we haven't seen a little bit more.
1: Let me ask you just about sort of what, what changed for you on, on Sunday night when we got the election results from France. I imagine you were looking ahead to uh, whether or not we see elections uh, in Italy, but he,
0: how, was, he was watching he, Brewers.
5: That's watching
1: Brewers baseball. <laughs>
5: <laughs> but David, every I, time I saw the Rangers play in Dallas on Friday
1: night, I saw them beat the Royals. <laughs> yeah, so that's a bard burn. Okay, yeah. continue. <laughs> but um, but how how, are we, how much uh, how much does sort of the political risk factor in for you going forward, looking ahead to to perhaps an election in Italy.
0: Yeah, where the political
5: risk really manifests itself in a lot of these financial holdings that we have. As you know, we're still overweight, uh, European financials in particular, and st- political stability seems to be better for these companies' prices. Now, again, the question is, is it really that much better for their business or not? But it's—I mean—clearly the result was was uh, accepted by the markets as something quite positive, because it looks like Mrs. Le Pen is going to have a very very difficult path to victory, and that the person, Mr. Macron, who um, who gathered the most votes, is seen as you know a centrist, someone who's sympathetic towards shareholder uh, free market capitalism. And, I mean, that in itself is a plus for a French leader. Uh, Because often you you don't have this attitude, and I think he understands that free markets and capitalism are the way – that wealth is created for your for your country.
0: Mr. Hero um, owns BMP Peribah, and the answer is it's been a moonshot given a few years ago. It's essentially thirty to seventy, and maybe it's forty to seventy. Uh, recently, you've owned this thing forever. Do you buy more here? Is it still a value, or have you you had your ride on BMP Peribah? Well, we think it's
5: still a value, but because a big position got a lot bigger, that yeah, you, know, you don't. Necessarily buy it because the market increased our weight for us uh and if anything you know given where it stood in our portfolio, we had to trim a little. But it's still, to us, it's still a good value. You know, one of the things that people are failing to adjust in their bank models in Europe is some kind of interest rate normalization. I mean, I do not believe that interest rates are going to be negative or low forever. And as interest rates begin to drift up, as the economy improves, as the political situation dies down, you'll start to see interest rates go up, which will be good for these financials. And I think a lot of people don't really, you know, include this, or price these things on normalcy. When we price a well, business, we look at normal conditions, it, not current.
0: Is b and Paribas a European proxy? Are they going to generate for David Harrow dividend growth? I mean, their income statement is an act of God. It's hugely profitable. Are they going to yeah. give you that cash, or are they going to say, mon dieu, mais non?
5: <laughs> no, they, this is a very, very well company. I mean, it's a very shareholder-oriented company. In fact, in fact, when they had a, uh, that big fine a couple of years ago, they didn't even cut their dividend because they had enough safety capital, and they didn't want the shareholders to pay. And so they maintained their dividend, and as they continue to grow their earnings, despite this interest rate environment, they've been growing their earnings through cutting costs and operating more efficiently, and through lower loan losses. And as a result, we have seen the dividends uh, go up, and the payout ratio remains steady to higher. So uh, even today, yeah. after the little run, the stock yields over 4% on 2017's dividend.
0: David Harrow with us on BNP Paribas, which has had quite a move. And, uh, you know, he goes back and forth. If International doesn't do that well, Mr. Harrell... Watches more Cubs, more Brewers. He goes see Green Bay and Rangers. When things, what, what's that about? <laughs> and then you know he goes, you know, when things crank it up, he, you know, buys half of Wisconsin or whatever he does with his money. <laughs> we'll come back with David, David Harrow with us, Harris Associates. David, is Canada a value? I mean, weaker currency and it's got the commodities and there's a whole uproar about lumber and 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 all that. Um, David, help me with Canada. Is it something we can invest in? Uh, Something you can
5: invest in. It's it's somewhat difficult to um, find names that meet our criteria. We have a few things. We have a few investments in our small cap portfolios up there. Um, It's an interesting place. It's a vibrant economy um but you know the the banks because they're so high quality they're kind of expensive you have a couple big manufacturers like bombardier but they're just saddled with debt and then there's all the mining and mining support yeah. and energy business and those are some of the things which you could look at and pick around the corners to see if something looks attractive
1: when you look at and, and listen to what's coming out of washington right now david I'm i'm curious what uh, what's making the most sense to you as you see the, the contours of these tax reform plans in particular? Uh, how that might well, affect your investing here is, in the U.S.?
5: Yeah, the problem is we don't
1: get the specific
5: details yet. I mean, you hear the president throw out a number 15% top corporate rate, and then something that the Congress prefers 20%. When we're at this proposal stage, people, I think, are positioning for negotiation and the out, the outcome of this negotiation is very, very unclear. I think we do know the rates are heading lower. We do know that they will take away some certain deductions, and this is probably a very good thing, because the more you could remove distortions from the economy, the more you can get market participants making decisions based on the forces of supply and demand, in my view, the better. And a tax system that's reflective of this will help more efficiently allocate resources. So yes, lower rates. Yes, take away deductions. Um, and I think the more you could do for those two things, the better. And at this stage, we just don't have enough details. And I just hope that uh, the, the government will be able to Withstand the pressure they're going to get from the special interest groups not to take away their pet deductions, whether it's be on uh, what we're talking about personal rates or business
1: rates. So is your is your attitude toward all of this now one of wait and see? Are you frustrated with the pace of how it's going? What what's your what's your sense of how are you reacting to what's happening in Washington right now?
5: I would rather have them do it carefully and slowly and correctly, than rapidly and incorrectly. And as you saw with the initial, um, the the visa thing, when it was rushed out, and it was done kind of sloppily, uh, it it was not a good, it was not effective. Now if they do this tax reform and health care reform in a very careful manner, looking at, you know, the various economic impacts. Uh, each one of these policy proposals have, and if they do this deliberately and then go all out at getting your votes, I think that is the way to do it. You don't have to. You want to make progress. Yes, you want to keep moving the football down the field. You know, similar to what Aaron Rodgers does consistently on a Sunday afternoon. Oh, this is what you want to be done. But what you don't want is it done incorrectly.
0: Who'd they lose Just to? Just because this you year? Who'd the Packers lose to because they rushed uh, <laughs> this year? <laughs> David, um, I, I, I'm going to talk to you about a foreign uh, a foreign country with multinationals. That would be the United States of America. Even an international guy like you can, can find value in the U.S. Where is it?
5: Yeah, when I look at how our global portfolios are positioned, for example, we still have a decent amount. And kind of the, some of the. Um, we have the technology names like Alphabet, because that to us represents good value, even though it looks a little pricey. When you look at the cash and the growth, and the investments they have, almost unpopped kernels, and uh, their leadership position, uh, you know we think this 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 is a good stock. And if you look at some of our other top names, names like General Motors. Now, it's not the most dynamic company mm-hmm. in the world, but it's growing its cash flow stream, and you're paying a very, very low price for the cash flow stream, and it has a strong uh, balance sheet. Uh, you know, the health care stocks, HCA, companies like this have gotten really tossed around over what happens with health care. Right. Th- so we, there, there is opportunity in the U.S. Okay. markets, is our view.
0: David Darrow, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. He is with the Harris Associates. Really interesting. I'm going to put out a chart on trade-weighted Canadian dollars. Fascinating. David Gurr and Tom Keen. Worldwide, this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gurra is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith. Incorporated member, SIPC.